Hello, I'm Harley Schlanger. Welcome to our weekly dialogue with Helga Zepp-LaRouche, the founder and chairwoman of the Schiller Institute. Uh, it's New Year's Eve 2021, and as we come to the end of what has been a tumultuous year, uh, we have to realize that most of the serious crises which have gotten worse during the year will be left unresolved as we move into 2022. But at least yesterday, there was a, a continuing dialogue between the president of Russia and the president of the United States. Putin and Biden had a nearly one hour discussion. And Helga, I'd like to begin with your assessment of uh, what went into that, why it took place and, and its significance. Yes, um, but let me um, basically say something concerning the new year beforehand, and that is that this coming year is going to be one where a lot of very crucial strategic issues will come to a head and where humanity is being confronted with choosing a path, a path to either solutions uh, which will bring mankind into a new paradigm or a path to hell. And that is why I want to officially declare 1922 the year of my late husband, Lyndon LaRouche, because it is his 100th birthday. And there is no more adequate way to celebrate this great man and the incredible richness of the works he has produced than to declare 1922 the year of Lyndon LaRouche. And I already can promise that we will conduct many meetings, conferences, seminars. We will publish the second volume of his collected works, that is the LaRouche Legacy Foundation will. And we will make everything possible that the solutions which Lyndon LaRouche offered to the strategic situation, to the economic crisis, to the cultural crisis, that these solutions will be on the table for every responsible government and parliament around the world to consider. And, um, you know, I think this will be a very, very fruitful endeavor. So I invite all of you to join with us the celebration of Linda LaRouche for the entire year. Now, having said that, um, I think that the situation around the US-Russia strategic crisis uh, is one of still incredible dangers because uh, as we will discuss in this present uh, dialogue, this has been building up since more than 30 years, since the end of the Soviet Union. And it has now reached a point where a solution has to occur. President Putin has responded to the endless series of provocations coming from NATO by demanding uh, legally binding treaties which guarantee the security of, of Russia. And that will be the subject of discussions. Um, not only was it raised between Biden and Putin in this uh, discussion they just had, but it will be the issue of discussions on January 10th in, in Geneva uh, between the United States and Russia uh, for two days. Then uh, on January 12th, it will be uh, in Brussels um, <clears throat> between uh, NATO and Russia. And then on the 13th, it will be a discussion among the OSCE in Vienna. And 
that is the framework where results have to, have to be produced. Uh, both President Putin and also Foreign Minister Lavrov have said clearly that they will not agree anymore to just have long talks, which will be then used in the meantime to build up the weapon systems along the Russian border uh, in Ukraine and Baltics and uh, other states. Uh, but they want written, legally binding guarantees, having in mind that there has been a long history of deception on the side of NATO. So I think this is something every concerned citizen, patriot, world citizen, should be on the side of demanding that these treaties must be signed because any continuous escalation uh, has the danger of leading to nuclear war, given the fact that the head of the US Strategic Command, Admiral Richard, had already in February basically instructed the Pentagon to requalify the likelihood of nuclear war from not likely to very, very likely. And naturally, the situation between the United States and China also is, uh, is similar tense. Uh, so therefore, we should really mobilize all uh, to create an environment where the world returns to reason. We need a completely new security architecture, uh, namely what was on the table in 1990 and 91, uh, where the option existed to include Russia into NATO or to abandon NATO and create a completely new security architecture, that should be emphatically on the table for this coming year. Uh, and that security architecture must also take into account the security interest of Russia and China for it to be a valid one. So I think that, you know, you know there is the danger and, and Foreign Minister Lavrov has warned again, you know, that uh, if there would be the option to have provocations, you know, basically done by private military agencies in East Ukraine or anything like that, that this will find a very harsh response. The language, I mean, Putin has said very clearly there is it is no longer the question of uh, Russia drawing red lines. Russia has been pushed into a situation where they have no more room to go. And that is why this is a point of no return and a solution must be found, which, uh, you know, really means man humanity has to go back to being the reasonable species and not continuing a course of confrontation, which threatens the extinction of the entire human species. I think it would be very useful, Helga, for you to just indicate what is in these proposals for written, legally binding guarantees, because most of the press is not covering this. What is it that Putin is asking for? Well, he demands that uh, there is a guarantee that Ukraine is not being included in NATO. Uh, this was promised to uh, Ukraine and uh, Georgia at the NATO summit in 2008 in uh, Bucharest. And that is one of these red lines because, you know, the promise which was given to uh, the Soviet Union and then naturally implicitly and, and continuously to Russia uh, already in 1990 by U.S. Secretary of State Baker that NATO would not move one inch 
uh, <coughs> eastward. That pr promise was broken. 40 new countries of the former Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, were added. Uh, NATO was extended 1,000 kilometers eastward. Uh, they are now including, you know, the Baltics and Poland and, you know, uh, Balkan countries. And Ukraine, if you look at the map, uh, would bring the warning time of a missile, uh, you know, offensive missiles coming from the border of Russia uh, and Ukraine to less than five minutes, which obviously is much too little for Russia to be able to defend itself. So this is the first requirement that Ukraine not be included in NATO. And then secondly, that NATO is not uh, continuously to move eastward and that offensive weapon systems are not being put in the territory of, for example, Ukraine, because that is what is happening already. And as uh, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Sakharova uh, recently said, you know, that there are already 10,000 uh, de facto NATO troops in Ukraine, 4,000 from the United States, 6,000 from other countries. Uh, a lot of weapon systems have already been moved uh, to Ukraine. Uh, in the last year, there have been uh, practically, no, de facto, every single day, NATO maneuvers at the Russian border. So in one sense, you could say that you don't even need to put Ukraine into NATO anymore, because if these maneuvers are going on every single day with many incidents uh, where U.S. surveillance planes or fighter jets had many almost incidents, including with civilian air, Russian civilian airplanes, for example, over the Black Sea. Um, I mean, this is a continuous state of tension, you know, which must be ended because, you know, even if there is not the intention to have actually World War Three, the danger that these things go out of control is simply very, very high. And I said before, you know, if the world peace depends on the flight abilities of pilots, then humanity is in very bad shape. So Putin has demanded that these two treaties be signed, one with the United States and one with NATO. And that is uh, the sine qua non, the condition uh, without which peace cannot be maintained. Now, you mentioned already the 1990 promise made by James Baker uh, to Gorbachev and also brought up by the Germans. But there were other opportunities uh, after that. There was the 1994 Clinton-Yeltsin talk, which uh, was then abandoned shortly after it was made. Um, we've just put out a chronology of this, and, and it's very useful if we, we go through some of this. Uh, because it's not just one time that there's been a violation of pledges and promises, has it been? It's a lot more than that. Yes, I would actually suggest to you, our readers, to absolutely um, download uh, this chronology, which will appear in many languages on all our international websites, and distribute it to uh, as many people you can, email, social media, whatever form, because it corrects the narrative, a narrative which has uh, portrayed uh, Russia in the recent period as uh, aggressor, uh, Putin uh, as a demon, 
uh, Russia is an autocratic uh, monster state. All of this is really uh, a lie. Uh, and, you know, it is really important to step by step reconstruct what actually happened. Now, just to recall, um, I mean, the only person in my knowledge who predicted that the Soviet Union would disintegrate was my late husband, Lyndon LaRouche, in 1994, when uh, <clears throat> the Soviet government rejected the offer by President Reagan to have a strategic defense initiative which would have been a way of really designing a new paradigm you know, to practically change mutual assured destruction into mutual assured survival. And when the Soviet government, which was at that time you know, on a different uh, trajectory, rejected that proposal, in 94, one year later, uh, Lyndon LaRouche uh, made the prognosis that if they would stick to their uh, offensive plans and, you know, putting a lot of emphasis on the military and the security apparatus at the, at the expense of the civilian economy, they would collapse. And that is exactly what happened. Now, because of his prognosis and, you know, his uh, prognosis in 1988 that the German unification would happen uh, very soon and then, you know, he proposed a proposal, you know, how to economically uplift the states of the Warsaw Pact, which we called the Productive Triangle, Paris, Berlin, Vienna. Uh, we were the only ones in the West who had a clear idea what to do. Namely, that, you know, with the end of communism, there was a historic chance of extraordinary uh, conditions, you know, something like what happens only once in a century, I called it the star hour of history, Sternstunde der Menschheit, um, because it would have created the basis to have a peace order, to end the Cold War. The enemy was no longer there, uh, you know, and to have the idea to have an economic integration of the entire Eurasian continent, which is what we proposed in 91 with the Eurasian land bridge, would have been the basis for a peace order for the 21st century. And that is still on the table. It's, it's now an option. But at that time, you know, it was rejected. Um, you know, Baker lied or Baker, I don't know, maybe Baker meant it when he told Gorbachev uh, and uh, Shervanatze that NATO would not be moved one inch eastward. Um, you know, and that was an absolute reasonable thing to say because there was no necessity. There was all of a sudden no enemy. Um, but, you know, as we now know and have reconstructed in this chronology, uh, already at the same time, people were plotting behind the scenes to do exactly that and slowly and step by step deceit uh, Russia. Um, that functioned because Yeltsin was a, um, you know, he's very much hated in, in, in Russia today for very good reasons. He accepted the imposition of the shock therapy, uh, which reduced the Russian economy from 91 to 94 uh, to 30% of its previous uh, volume. Uh, there was a demographic collapse of more than 1 million Russians 
less every year because the death rate went up and you know the economic conditions were absolutely horrendous. And as long as that disintegration of Russia continued, which fitted the plans of these neocons who wanted to reduce Russia from a superpower uh, into a third world produce a third world country producing only raw materials for export, but dismantling the economy. There, in that entire period, there was no problem in, in the relationship uh, with the West and with the United States was friendly. There were many, Russia, uh, many US officials in all kinds of positions in, in, in Russia. So there was no reason to suspect that something else was going on. Meanwhile, there was the plan already to reduce Russia uh, and eventually, you know, make sure that, you know, that it would be dismantled as a superpower and never come back. That naturally did not happen uh, with such uh, uh, persons as Primakov uh, and especially Putin when he became uh, president the first time, they started to roll back uh, this, um, this dismantling of Russia. And that is when, you know, step by step, uh, the demonization of, of Russia occurred. So it's really important to understand that history because, you know, I mean, for, from the standpoint of the Russians, it was completely ununderstandable. And the deputy uh, uh, um, person in the Russian mission in New York, Polyansky, uh, said it in an interview. They felt completely betrayed because they were they they felt that you know they were no more a communist country. They they could have easily be integrated into NATO into, or any other security uh, alliance. And you know therefore you know if you take Russia Russia's history into account. They lost 27 million people in the Second World War. For them to agree to the German unification uh, without the deployment of tanks, uh, you know, without any kind of, uh, you know, aggressive action, where Germany had, you know, played obviously the horrible role in, in World War II, was a sign of incredible generosity. So from the Russian standpoint, to see how the West betrayed them is something which has to go into the calculation of Western planners. Because if you want to remedy the situation and not end up in World War III, then that is uh, an absolute important step. And you've often said that the solution is to give up the geopolitical doctrine which has shaped the transatlantic or NATO-US policy. Uh, just to restate this one more time, the intent of the geopoliticians was to destroy Russia as a sovereign nation state. Now, at the same time, they kept nibbling at the borders, moving closer and closer, and you had the incursions or the uprisings encouraged in the color revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine, and then eventually, February 2014, the coup in Ukraine. This is obviously why Ukraine is, is looms so large at this point, as an issue between Russia and the United States, isn't it? Yes, and I don't want to uh, to you know to absolve the EU either, because you know the EU and NATO eastward expansion went sort of uh, hand in hand. Um, the EU uh, is an empire that has been stated by several of its officials 
uh, unashamedly. And what started to trigger, I mean, there was this buildup of uh, Nazi forces in Ukraine by the you know, National Endowment of Democracy uh, over you know, the, the entire period leading to the Orange Revolution in, in 2004. Um, it's a shame on the West that they have cooperated with these uh, forces in the tradition of Stepan Bandera. They used that for the in the Cold War and they kept these networks throughout the period. Many of them were located in Munich. Um, but, you know, it really started to get, uh, uh, you know, dangerous when the EU tried to pull Ukraine into the EU association agreement. Uh, you know, by end of uh, 2013, uh, which would have basically given NATO access to the Black Sea. It would have opened the Russian market for EU exports. It would have completely dismantled the Ukraine uh, industrial capacities because they would not have been able to defend against uh, the EU uh, free market uh, rules. So when Yanukovych at the end of 2013 did not sign this uh, EU association agreement. That was the trigger point, you know, when, you know, the uh, NGOs, which were financed by Victoria Nuland with $5 billion, she bragged about that uh, in, the, in the years before, they started these demonstrations on the Maidan. These demonstrations were immediately reinforced by these uh, extreme right-wing forces, even from the Middle East. Uh, ISIS-related forces were flown in, and that is what then led to, you know, the uh, coup in February 2014, with a lot of things which need to be re-looked at, you know, like uh, evidence of snipers shooting both police and demonstrators on the Maidan. Uh, so, you know, I mean, this story is not what what it is portrayed right now. It is not that Russia uh, next Crimea. There was a Nazi coup in Kiev, which was supported by the West, uh, especially Victoria Nuland um, and, you know, others uh, in, in, in various think tanks uh, as well. And when they forbid the Russian language and, you know, created a, a real security threat for the Russian population in the Donbass and in Crimea, then, you know, there was a referendum in the Crimea where the population uh, voted, you know, I, I don't have the exact figures now, but over 90% wanted to be part of the Russian Federation. Uh, so there was no coup. And, you know, either you give Kosovo the right for self-determination, then you have to give it to the Crimea as well. And that is obviously what happened. So the double standard has to be corrected as well. So I think, you know, this chronology is is really important for everybody to look at, uh, and you know, because the demonization of of Putin and of Russia has already poisoned the minds of many people, but it is not uh, supported by the facts, and um, that is uh, very important to to be straightened out. And that chronology is available for people on a number of our websites, but you can look at larouchepub.com and make sure you get it, study it, because the details are there. And the picture is very clear when you have the whole uh, view from the 1980s forward, especially around the work 
of Lyndon LaRouche and also Helga LaRouche during that same period. Now, Helga, let's, let's move on to the, one of the other crisis areas which has not been resolved at all and in fact is, is turning into a, a humanitarian disaster beyond belief, namely Afghanistan. Uh, what's the latest picture you have on that? Well, it is the greatest humanitarian crisis on the planet unfolding. Um, I think that if the West is not very quickly reversing their policy, uh, that will be the point of shame. Um, you know, I think the West is about to lose its soul if we cannot mobilize a change because uh, it has been stated by Beasley from the World Food Program by other UN uh, institutions that 98% of the Afghan population are uh, very poor. Are, are, uh, you know, the whole nation is in extreme poverty. Now, on top of that, more than 90% of the population are starving in the winter. Um, 24 million people are in danger of starving and not outliving this winter. Now, that is not the, the guilt of the Taliban as the Western media, if they mention Afghanistan at all these days. Uh, it is the result of the policy of the West, because as Imran Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, has stated in a speech to the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which recently took place in Islamabad, that when NATO left in August, uh, everybody knew that 75% of the budget of Afghanistan had come from international donor countries. So since these donors immediately cut all aid uh, because the Taliban had taken over, everybody knew that the Afghan people would have no budget. And immediately you had a process where health workers, uh, civil servants, could not be paid, there was no more fuel, there no more electricity, no more medical supply, no food, banks shut, there was no cash. Uh, people who had a little bit of money in the bank could not take it out to import anything because you know there was a complete breakdown of the economy. And that is still more or less ongoing with little exceptions, you know, like Russia, China, neighboring countries started to uh, bring in some humanitarian aid, but a country of almost 40 million people was left in the dark, in the cold, in there to, to die. And that is genocide. And I, I really want to use that word consciously because if Western governments cut off not only the donor money, but also freeze the funds which belong to the Afghan people, 9.5 9.3 billion uh, hold by the US Treasury and several hundred million hold uh, by European banks, money which they have no right to hold back, then that is genocide because if you look at the consequences of what it does. So what we are doing, you know, is we try to really put a limelight on it. The Committee of Coincidence of Opposites, which is an organization which works in the context of the Schiller Institute. Uh, we are trying to put a limelight on that by mobilizing to unfreeze the funds, 
to have you know seminars uh, about the subject to to educate the population because the mainstream media is no longer even reporting about it and you know to uh, bring actually humanitarian aid to afghanistan everything is needed grain uh, food medical supplies vaccination just everything but to build a modern health system because we are still in the middle of a pandemic so I've called this Operation Ibn Sina, according to the great uh, physician from thousand years ago, Avicenna, uh, to give it a name. And I would call on all of you, who, if you agree, uh, join us to help to remedy this situation, which is one of uh, the most horrible, heartbreaking story. And uh, we have to reverse this and naturally then start with a long-term economic uh, build up of the Afghan e economy, which only can occur in the context of the Belt and Road Initiative, because all the neighbors of uh, Afghanistan are participating in these projects of railways, of uh, highways, of uh, infrastructure of various kinds. So that needs to be put on the table as well. But I mean, what you can do is to really uh, help to change, to unfreeze these funds and to cooperate with Operation Ibn Sina, uh, because this, this has to be reversed. I mean, this is, if this is not reversed, I mean, for me, this is the moral complete failure of the West if, if we allow this to happen. And Helga, the proposal for Operation Ibn Sina is part of a broader proposal you've made for a world healthcare system for every nation instead of the medical apartheid which exists at this point which in, under conditions of a pandemic creates the basis for continuous uh, emergence of, of new variations uh do you have anything you you want to say about that uh yes um i mean first of all the uh, existence of these different mutations Delta, now Omicron, um, should remind people that, you know, there is no guarantee. You cannot protect uh, the rich countries, you know, by giving vaccines, hoarding vaccines, and then leaving the developing countries in the cold. Uh, these mutations are the result of such a short-sighted, uh, narrow-minded uh, policy. And, you know, even if some virologists are now saying maybe Omicron will not be as deadly and that will be the end of the pandemic, well, we should not rest because, you know, there are also many virologists who are already studying other viruses uh, because new pandemics can erupt and they will erupt as long as you have entire continents being in such a condition, you know, of, of mass starvation, of, of no medical uh, system. And I think that this pandemic should teach the world a lesson that we need to have an end to the underdevelopment. I mean, can you sleep uh, well in thinking that, you know, there are about at least a billion people who are starving every day, who, who may have one meal, but not two, two billion people who have no clean water, uh, 50,000 uh, children dying, I think, every day as a result of these conditions, you know, and this is all not necessary. You know, if you had a change in policy where you would put the common good 
in front instead of the um, profit maximization of the billionaires who have so much money that it comes out of their ears. They cannot eat as much caviar as you know they have in the banks. They cannot drive as many yards as they could buy. I mean, this had, has reached a point of obscenity and this needs to be changed. We have to go back to, in the United States, the American system of economy. In Germany, the system of Friedrich List. In other countries, you know, a modification of a similar policy where the common good is put up front again. We should have a privatization of the health system. The idea that, that health should be uh, a subject of profit, you know, you have seen that even rich countries like Germany, which will not be so rich uh, in the future if this present uh, government has its way for very long because of their green uh, policies, you know, even there, you know, it should have demonstrated, it, it was demonstrated that the privatization of the health system meant there was not enough um, masks, not, not hospital beds have been reduced in the last year by 5,000. One third of the health workers are no longer there because of bad pay in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, this is just completely upside down. So the World Health System idea is that the pandemic has taught us that we need modern hospitals in every single country on the planet. We have made a program uh, that we need about 1.5 billion new productive jobs. One part of what needs to be built is 30,000 new hospitals uh, and, you know, obviously appropriate infrastructure and electricity, water uh, and, and various other uh, components. And that has to be done and that has to be the beginning of an overcoming of the underdevelopment of the developing sector. Uh, as Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, wanted it uh, when he uh, proposed the Bretton Woods system, where the primary aim was to increase the living standard of every single individual on the planet, which naturally was never implemented because Bretton Woods was then, uh, you know, shaped very much by Truman and Churchill. But the idea that a large part of the human species should live under such horrible conditions. You know, it's just something which has to end. And, you know, 1922, as I said, you know, will be a year of complete changes, either for the worse or for the better. And why not have the idea that a new paradigm must be implemented in 22, um, the four power idea of Little LaRouche the four laws of Lyndon LaRouche, Global Class Steagall, New Bretton Woods, national banking in every country, a new financial architecture, cooperation among the United States, Russia, China, Europe, Japan, South Korea, other industrial nations to start in earnest to develop Southwest Asia, to industrialize Africa, to bring Latin America up to a modern level. So I think that can be done. And, you know, I think if people would, you know, think that we could really do all of this, a complete excitement would take place and, you know, we would become human. So I would like you to join efforts with the Schiller Institute uh, to make sure that 1922, uh, uh, 2022 becomes such a year of breakthroughs 
an optimism and you know that we find a way of not having world war three but have a cooperation among all nations on this planet i think we can leave it at that that the way to make 2022 a happy new year for all of humanity is to make it the year of Lyndon LaRouche in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of his birth. Uh, Helga, this has been quite uh, useful, this review of the strategic situation, the, the health situation, the economic situation. Again, people should go to our websites, uh, look at the chronology of, of the US-Russia relations, uh, and we wish you that we will have, that you will join with us to make sure that 2022 is a good year. Helga, any final thought? Well, I wish you a full year uh, to the end and then another year beyond that, because that is the most important, to exist is the most important. I mean, that has been in the European philosophy for centuries, a discussion that the existence is what is the most crucial because without that, everything else is mute. So I wish you a full year and I wish you a happy year. And, you know, let's rise uh, to a new level of development of the human species. Okay, Helga, thank you very much. And we'll see you again next week.